This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. When he talks about no place for truth, it's not that people would formally say, I'm not interested in truth. What they thought mattered wasn't deep truths about God. Hello, welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master. I am here with James Dalzell, and we are breaking the format up a little bit today because what we would like to do is to discuss a particular book that has been influential in both of our lives, although I was the one who made the suggestion to James, so he's going to lead and uh, ask me questions, but we want to have a conversation about this uh, important book, and the book is No Place for Truth or subtitle, or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology by David Wells. So, James, I'm placing myself in your hands. Fire away. All right, Jonathan. This is not a new book. Uh, some of our some of our listeners uh, will know the book has been around for some decades. In fact, you interviewed David Wells on another book uh, on a very early episode of Theology on the Go. Time Magazine says, a stinging indictment of evangelicalism's theological corruption. Jonathan, why this book? I had to read this book when I was 19 or 20 years old, yeah. so I'll, I'll say a couple things about that. But why why does this book matter even these, these decades now since it's been written? Right, so I probably encountered it at around the same age. I think I saw the cover of it and the book itself when it first came out. I believe my father was reading it right when it was published. But I didn't get to it for another couple years after that. And so this was probably the mid-90s, maybe 95 or so. And uh, why this book? Well, I think for me, there were some personal reasons. The time that I was introduced to the book and really uh, dove into it, that coincided with uh, a time when I was sitting under the ministry of uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. And Dr. Boyce was speaking a lot about this Wells book. It had obviously influenced his own thinking and alarmed him in certain ways, in positive ways, and, and it resonated with some of his concerns. So, so for me, there's a biographical element to it. But I would also say this, from the standpoint of ideas, when I read this book, it clarified for me a bunch of different, I guess, instincts or 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 uh, responses that I was having, concerns that I was having that I, I couldn't put into words. I didn't have the theological acumen to to really uh, speak with clarity about what I was watching happen in churches. So what was happening? Well, at that time, in the circles that I was a part of, what was happening was the church growth movement. And that was really taking hold in some significant ways. So, so there was a shift in what the the objective or the purpose of a of a church was thought to be, and and therefore also a significant shift in what was thought to be the purpose of pastoral ministry and pastoral leadership. And again, I don't know if I could have put my finger on all that. There were things I liked, things I didn't like, but but it was. It was very vague in my mind, and what what Wells did is he diagnosed a, a deeper, more significant problem um, in terms of the church's attitude towards theology, and then therefore towards ministry. and And he did it in a very sophisticated way. It is a very learned study, and I was struck because I knew we were going to have this conversation, and and I, I don't know how many times I've read through the book, but. I sort of scanned through it again uh, within the last few days, and, and I was struck by how this book didn't strike me as dated. 
I, I mean, I remember reading mm. it and I remember what was going on, but it, there's a sense in which asking what was going on when it was written it is almost beside the point because what he diagnosed is still with us. So what? So he's so obviously his title is his diagnosis in a way. Uh, no place for truth. But what does he mean? No place because I, I can't imagine anyone doesn't want truth. Uh, that's that's the natural desire of any intellect. So what what is he what is he getting after? Now, and particularly, how does that connect to the church growth movement? Because if yeah. I mean we want our churches to grow, yeah, we yeah. pray that the Lord would would bring people to our churches. But what does the church growth movement in particular do that undermined truth? Well. Let me try to answer that by by answering the first part of your question. I think that, so Wells starts with two very arresting illustrations or images. The first is from a class that he's teaching. That's in the introduction. And he talks about how he was teaching in a seminary classroom and he was introducing these students to theology. I think he was teaching their sort of theology survey or their introduction to theology. And he was struck by the fact that again and again, the response he would get after the introduction, after the long kind of rationale for why this is worth studying. He would have students, very earnest students, in, in many cases, very intelligent students who would come up to him and say something like, I want to study something that's actually going to help me in my ministry. I came here to learn to be a pastor. I didn't come here to study theology deeply. Maybe they didn't put it in those words, but that was essentially what they were saying. I came here to learn how to do ministry, not to study all these things you're talking about. So that he starts with that illustration. And then he also starts with an illustration at the kind of beginning, the first chapter of the book of what life was like in the new England town in which he mm. still lived at, at the time of the writing of the book and how different it's, if I can say center of gravity was than it is today. And he talked about how the church and theological thinking was at the center in a way that it's just, not now. So that's what he means when he talks about no place for truth. It's not that people would formally say, I'm not interested in truth, but their understanding of what actually mattered in their lives, both in the town itself and the kind of, you might say, the secular environment, mm. but also in the Christian church, in the seminary environment, what they thought mattered wasn't deep truths about God. What, so what did they think mattered? Because there, it seems like there's this new conception of a pastor or what the pastor is supposed to be vis-a-vis right. -vis the congregation. Um, what is that new conception and why does it, how does that work against like deep theological study or, or you know, exegetical work, that kind of thing? He saw that the, the primary characteristics that people were looking for in a pastor and, and the primary things that pastors were, were feeling pressured to embrace and, and, and measure themselves in, in light of were essentially modern categories of leadership, that the pastor had moved from being the one who communes with God in prayer and in study of the word, and therefore does so in such a way that he can speak on behalf of God to the people, that now the pastor was looked at more as a a leadership guru, a CEO, maybe a counselor, and that those skills were the things that he needed to really immerse himself in at the expense of those other things. So that those things were, were, were considered unimportant and insignificant to the lives of, uh, of real people and real churches. And so that, that I think was the shift he would have described, that it moved from a, a kind of 
deep thinking about things of God and communing with God focus to a focus on leadership skills and techniques. So that's interesting. I, as I recall, and I don't remember exactly where in the book or how he put it, but he has, he has some critique of the sort of explosion of leadership degrees in seminaries and grad schools as, as in a certain sense, answering this newfound um, demand for skillful leadership, which is uh, being a leader is part of being a pastor and being right. organized as part of it. And I'm sure you and your MDiv, I certainly did in mine, have courses on how to run a church business meeting or right. an elders meeting, or, you know, we had lectures on pastoral tax law right. and things like that. And all relevant things and things that the pastor is, um, you know, it, it's a benefit to know those things. But at a certain point, that can become the be-all, end-all you're running this operation, but what is the pastor really to be doing with his time? What is his calling or his vocation? Well, I think Wells would answer it in a way similar to the way the apostles address this question when they appoint deacons hmm. um, in the book of Acts. The apostles, uh, we don't have apostles today, but the apostles said that they needed to have their lives set apart for prayer and for the ministry of the word. And I think if you read the pastoral epistles and read Paul's instructions to Timothy and even his instructions to Titus, who had a slightly different role in overseeing the churches in Crete. Uh, but, but in both cases, those are the kinds of things that Paul told both Timothy and Titus to uh, turn their attention to, to the study of the word of God, to their own life and their own doctrine to the ministry of prayer. I'm always struck by the fact that when Paul describes the last days, which will be difficult times, he says, and, and, he, and, he, and he lists out this litany of things that will characterize the last days. People will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money. And as he goes on to describe, it's a very contemporary description, yet what he says then to Timothy is, but you, you need to continue in the things that you've learned and become acquainted with. And you need to remember that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. And so I think those are the kinds of notes that Wells would strike. And and I don't know if you're if you're asking me how I would answer or how Wells would answer, but I think we'd answer the same way. And I think we would answer in light of what we see in terms of the priorities of the New Testament pastor. So I was thinking in, in his book, No Place for Truth, he contrasts that older devotion to the scriptures and to the teachings of the church with a new kind of pastoral study, a, a statement uh, in the book. He says the new script for study or the new script for pastoral study, he means, is human experience, not the teaching of the Bible or for that matter of the church. I mean, I wonder if you could comment on this turn toward the study of human experience as as sort of that which gives rise to the sermon and to its content. Right. So you're starting now with people, and, and this was very explicit, by the way. I, I don't think we need to limit ourselves to, to questions about the church growth movement that was especially popular in the 1990s and late 80s. But I, I will say explicit in that movement was that you start with people's felt needs. In other words, you start with what they they say they care about, what they say they can, are, are concerned with, and then you try to navigate through that and give them a message that addresses that. So so that felt need kind of thing was, was 
prominent was explicit. And, and I think that that tells us something. I think the shift is from starting from the perspective of what God has said to starting from the perspective of what are people saying they're concerned with? What are people feeling? What are they going through? And then, you know, everything moves out from the center. And if the center is human experience, then that's going to change how you preach and teach. It's also going to change what you value because then the kinds of things that you value will be things like relatability and ability to navigate through complex and, and different types of, of human situations. I can imagine a response to that saying, yes, but the but the preacher is preaching to people yes. who are having experiences in the modern world, uh, good and ill, and isn't he supposed to address them himself to the real lives of his people? How is that? Because I would imagine Wells would say, well, of course he should. Yes. But how is that different? How can we speak to that um, and yet not fall prey to what Wells is talking about, where there's this kind of anthropocentrism where man's felt need. In other words, how do how do we deal with the real needs of yeah. people and the real experiences of people, but still allow the word its central place? He's absolutely not advocating, nor, nor am I trying to in any way advocate that you become distant from your people. If you're talking about pastoral ministry, that there's a distance between you and the congregation. He's he's not saying that. He wouldn't say that. And I don't think, frankly, anyone who wrote on pastoral ministry in the history of the Christian church would say that. So right. that that's not the issue. It's not about, you know, do we kind of remove ourselves from the people and isolate ourselves in the proverbial ivory tower. Descending once a week Correct. to speak a right. word from on high, right. 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 not to be seen till next Sunday. Right. No, exactly. Exactly. No, not at all. Not at all. So I think one way you protect against what you're describing is by continuing to minister. I mean, remember the Apostle Paul, for all his emphasis on uh, preaching and teaching and all that I mentioned about Timothy, when he describes his own ministry to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2, he talks about how he shared not only the word of God, but also his very life with them. And he was with them house to house. And, and he was with them, we might say, you know, 24 seven. I mean, he had a, he, he was, he was with them walking through life's challenges. It's not a distance in that sense, but it's a question of the center of authority. It's a question of right. who sets the agenda. It's a question of whose agenda am I most attuned to? And I think this hits at something that, I don't remember him exploring this in detail in this book, but but I think it's an implication of what he does explore. We have to be confident that the Word of God and the theology that arises out of the Word of God actually is true to deep human needs and experience. Right. In other words, God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows our people better than we could ever know them. And I think any preacher who consistently tries to proclaim the word of God will testify to many, many occasions where someone will say, you couldn't have known this about what I was going through, but what you right. said was directly relevant to my situation. It's just a reminder that it's a fool's errand for us to think that we're going to somehow understand every thought and situation that everyone's in um, when in fact, God's word already understands us as human beings. Human nature doesn't change. And God's word speaks to human nature, 
human realities. There are times when I've when I'll, I'll get an email perhaps from someone and I've on something I've written maybe more of a of a doctrinal sort and they'll say um, this is how the Lord used that you know whether it's things I've written on like divine simplicity or something like this and then uh, or impassibility or something and then someone says um, this is how the Lord used that in my life and they describe a situation I think I I couldn't have imagined that that doctrinal study was going to have a point of contact that gave encouragement or consolation to somebody in that particular situation. It never crossed my mind, but the timeless truths of Scripture find humans where they are and in the situations that they are. And if we are, if we're faithful to those truths and have confidence that the Lord who made us knows us best and allow that, that word to drive the message we proclaim, we are going to end up being practical preachers, uh, I should hope anyway. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And again, this isn't another sort of caveat. This isn't saying don't try uh, as best you can to make application uh, of the truth of God to actually apply these things to people's lives. That's hard work, but it needs to be done and it needs to be obvious that you see these things as having real relevance both to your own life and to the lives of others. So again, this isn't about no application. It isn't about distance, certainly not about distance from people. But what it is about is the center of authority and therefore what we're going to be spending our time and energy and and even resources pursuing most in pastoral ministry. Look, there are a lot of people that you can talk to who can give you good advice, who can get along well with you, who can exercise good leadership qualities and probably do all those things maybe, dare I say, better than your pastor. But what they're not doing is spending their time preparing themselves so that they can feed you God's word. That's what we need. That's the one thing we desperately need to make it through what is often very challenging life circumstances. Well, I think that's probably a good note to wrap up on as a as a pitch for David Wells' book, No Place for Truth. Now, 25 years or so after its publication, but because he was talking about truth that is timeless and the ever-present need for that to be proclaimed in the church, the book itself remains uh, a relevant and timely word. I think it does, and uh, for those of you who are Alliance fans, it, it is no accident that our site is called Place for Truth because this book, No Place for Truth, is something that that we thought really diagnosed uh, one of the problems that we see in the church today. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for sharing uh, about this book with our listeners, and uh, and we do hope that some of you pick up this book and take it as a as a uh, encouragement to hold fast to the truth. Yeah, I should say as well that we do always want to thank you as our listeners and as a way of thanking you, if you are interested in entering your name for a chance to win a copy of Place for Truth, we'll have a copy available. You can go to placefortruth.org and click on the Theology on the Go link. There'll be a place to enter your name and email information to win possibly a copy of No Place for Truth by David Wells. And even if you don't win, we would recommend you reading this book for yourself. I think it will be eye-opening and and ultimately constructive for you. So thanks as always for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. <laughs>